Hello and welcome to episode 12 of Here's the Thing, 8-Minute Movies. This is the penultimate episode. I'm very, very excited, as you can tell. Um, my name is Kieran. And my name is Peter. And together we are Pagliacci, the clown. Um, how are you doing today on this day, Peter? This pre-Christmas day. Keep mentioning the dates because we're shifting this into the future by at least three months. Yes. So when yes. people listen to this in March, they'll be like, Christmas! And they can think back fondly on all those Christmas time yes, activities we hope- like remaining indoors. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we we hope to alienate people completely by the time this comes out. Yeah. Um, uh, so, <laughs> yes, I have finished uh, working for the year. Um oh. This is my first day off, um, and I am yeah ready to do some relaxing for a ah, couple of weeks. Excellent. Um, I I don't know now. Now that you've said it, maybe we should retake this whole section like this is March. Hang on. Um, it's Easter, isn't it, Peter? Yep. Yeah. Oh, I'm full of eggs. Oh yeah. I'm so. Oh shit. Hang on. We have to predict what happens with that whole viral situation as well. Um. Everyone is cured now. I Every, am, everything's fine. I'm so glad I have the vaccine, and only side effect was that everyone has rat tails now. Yeah, the, uh, I mean, I was distressed at first, but it's sort of convenient for yeah. picking stuff up, carrying it around. Providing also, balance. Like the extra eyes, you know, the ones mm. on the back? Uh, I wasn't expecting those. Oh, you didn't have those already? Uh, oh, well, maybe. Mm. Who can uh, say? It's so hard to remember what it was like before. <laughs> In the distant past. Um, this is an interesting intro for a body horror podcast. Mm. Um. <laughs> no, sadly, it is nearly Christmas when we're recording this, and we're all trying to figure out whether we are allowed to see anyone yes um i'm seeing two members of my family who are isolating for two weeks in advance to see us for one day (laughs) what what fun (laughs) yeah we've we've got similar plans but it's uh, more like a few bubbles uh, um, emerging um, and we're being extra careful for uh, a couple of weeks in order to make that happen Christ, like, uh, I hope in a year all this talk of bubbles makes no fucking sense whatsoever anymore. Uh, I hope we've fixed all this by then. Yeah, it's, uh, I'm not surprised. I, I think everyone, like, everyone I work with and stuff like that were a little more surprised that we're still talking about this now. I am not. <laughs> I'm not surprised we're still talking about this now. I was kind of in it for the long haul. So despite it being a nightmare, I'm not shocked that this is where we are now. Yeah, still rat tails and eggs to look forward to. Rat tails and eggs. Yep. Here we go. It's the uh, 12th episode and you still haven't asked me how I'm doing. Uh, no, I did. I very pointedly did it uh, <laughs> last time. Um, you, do, you don't get to do it once and then not again. Uh, I've done my bit for society. Um, <laughs> You're a monster. <laughs> look, how how do you know that I'm not about to ask you at a good 
stopping point, and then you just interrupt me by saying that I haven't asked you yet. Maybe you're just too needy. <laughs> How do I know you're not going to ask me? Because I've met you. <laughs> <laughs> How are you? Yeah, I'm all right. <laughs> See, that's what you always say. What, like, this is why I don't ask. Uh, um, what exciting things have happened to me in in the past seven or so hours since we last recorded one of these? Mm-hmm. Um, well, for lunch, I tried to recreate my favorite sandwich in the world. Ah, uh, this is, I I'm going to predict that this is the Christmas sandwich from. Uh, is it Pretz one? No, no, that's an that's an interesting aside. That Christmas sandwiches usually are my favourite sandwiches, but mm. I ha- there's one sandwich I ate once, and it was the best sandwich I've ever eaten. And since then, I've periodically tried to recreate it, but never quite reached the level of majesty it had before. Right, and what is the sandwich? Um, it, it's it's the roadkill sandwich served by a no longer existing cafe in Hull. Right. For Americans, a roadkill sandwich means something different. Um, here, what they meant was a chicken and bacon sandwich with mayo and sweet chili sauce on, like, bloomer bread. And it was so good. So good. So how close did you get? Um, fairly close. Fairly close. It was that I had, you know, the bacon, the chicken... The only thing I couldn't get was the bread. Uh, Tesco's swapped the delivery for me at the last minute. I mean, and I'm glad they did it because a sandwich without bread is much worse than a sandwich with the wrong sort of bread. Mm. But um, it would have been better if I'd had exactly the right bread. Mm. I don't know. I've never managed to achieve it. Maybe it's a nostalgia thing. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, if you do achieve it, it just won't be as good as you remember. Maybe, Maybe the sandwich in my mind, is always going to be better than the sandwich that I make. Yes, you should leave behind the sandwich in the past where it's safe. (laughs) This uh, sounds like one of those Zen things. Mm. (laughs) What what else have I been doing? Um, uh, Well, I know one thing you've been doing. What's that? Uh, You have been finishing making a video game. Oh, no, we did that like three months ago. Back in December. Look, we can't keep up this pretense. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I, and you have finished a an an inter, international video game. <laughs> In what sense is it international, Kieran? Um, one time, I took my laptop to Germany. Okay. All right. You can also download it from anywhere in the world. I suppose that makes it international. You can, but then most video games are international video games, aren't they, in that that case? Uh, Look, look, I said the wrong word, and I I was hoping you wouldn't pull me up on it, and yet you have, repeatedly. Yes, I I have, yeah. Endlessly. Mm -hmm. Some Um, would say without cease. Would you like to withdraw the word? No, no, I think it stands. Okay. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, we made a game called uh, Fix Fix Bang Bang. Um, it's an asymmetric co-op game where one player is flying around a spaceship in a vertical scrolling shooter-like scenario. Uh, and the other player is inside the spaceship running around doing errands to keep it in tip-top shape. 
Um, yeah, I mean, you will have heard about it at this point because it's been on the cover of the internet and um, uh, the president said it's good. Um, mm-hmm. I'm very bad at, at predicting what's going on in the future. Yeah, we we assume that it's been a sensation and everyone loves it. So yeah, fix, fix, bang, bang. We made that. Yeah, yeah. Um, it took a while, but it's it's out now in stores. Is it in stores? Uh, surprisedman.itch.io is where you can find that one. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something that we have been working on for years. And when I say four years, I don't mean four years i mean nine years (laughs) (laughs) it turns out the games are hard and nobody should try and make them it's been mostly done for a a lot of that time now it just turns out that the the last bit just pulling everything together is really hard Uh, and every time we thought it was nearly done we'd we weren't quite satisfied with one bit of it or we found no, I'll, I'll tell you what happens i'll tell you what happens it's that you show it to somebody and they say oh it's great except for this one thing and you're like oh uh, i guess we better do something about that one thing and yeah then you, and then that one thing takes 11 months <laughs> <laughs> and you know we haven't been non-stop on this that like in nine years it turns out various life events can happen that interrupt things uh, and we like even when things are going smoothly, we're only really spending a, a small amount of our weeks doing this. We do other things as well. Uh, Stop making and, excuses. You're just making it sound worse. Uh, no, but uh, <laughs> what what I wanted to say is that the person who has been carrying this really for the last several years has been you because. You program the game. I have been involved in like design stuff, but uh, the main stuff that I've actually had to make for the game were like graphics assets and music stuff and animations and that kind of thing. And nearly all of those were done years ago. So I guess what I'm saying is thank you for being persistent with this while I've had relatively little to do. Yeah, no... I I have done work. You have done work. The game is complete. Everyone should play it. Uh, the most important part is that you have to play it with a friend because it's a co-op game. Um, yes. So if you don't have any friends, um, why not try making some? You could talk to them about how much you like the thing. <laughs> That's how I make friends, or at least shoo away potential friends who I'm not sure about. Yeah, we made like a single player mode that we call practice mode, but it's not how you're supposed to play the game. It doesn't have all the features and it's just, it it is really just a practice mode to let you get used to the controls and stuff on your own. Plus, while you're using the practice mode, it administers brief electric shocks to you continually. Yeah, because you're not supposed to play it like that. Well, uh, it's weird. We've never had anything to plug before. I'm... uh... I think that might make us a real podcast at this point. Yeah, it's uh, we we do do other things apart from sitting around and talking about the thing. Well, I mean, I mostly sit around and talk about the thing. Where you know, sometimes I record it, sometimes I don't. Yeah, and I um, I watch people talking about the thing. That's my new hobby. <laughs> um, so. Um, kind of since we started doing this uh in the background i feel like 
the thing has been enjoying a kind of resurgence in pop culture. I, I think so, anyway. Um, for reasons that I'm not really aware of, a lot of people are making videos and things about the thing uh, and putting them on YouTube. Uh, may, uh, largely kind of reaction videos where they've never seen it before and they're uploading a video of them reacting to it for the first time and out of curiosity i started watching some of these and as soon as you start doing that it starts recommending more and like barely a week has gone by for the past couple of months where a new one of these videos hasn't cropped up somewhere uh and uh i i had a quick look and i feel like there's been about 20 of these in the last few months alone uh it so it seems to be just a popular uh, uh activity for people to do yeah it's interesting that you brought this up uh because to me the thing is always popular mm-hmm. so i have not noticed this and also i don't really look at reaction videos or anything like that because i'm in my mid-30s so i don't understand what the kids of today (laughs) what the kids of today are doing um you know i i don't generally watch them but i have started kind of idly watching them for stuff that i am interested in uh, seeing reactions to and the reason is that there's something funny about watching someone respond to something for the first time when it's fresh uh, i i feel the same watching cuz you you occasionally watch people play through games right on yes. youtube yes that's um, true that's that's my one crime yeah and uh i i sometimes do that too especially games that have like a story like an adventure game or something like i i like watching people do like a playthrough of monkey island or grim fandango or something like that um and i find that you can get some kind of vicarious enjoyment from watching someone enjoy something for the first time that you're very used to. It's not quite like watching it for the first time over again, but it reminds you of that feeling in a pleasant sort of way. Mm. I mean, I sort of get that, but I am going to keep a closer eye on you from now on to see if you start dabbing and or flossing or planking. Uh, I think all of those references are already out of date. Yeah, I know. I know. Uh, see, see my earlier comments. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what is it kids do these days. Pogs, uh, something like that, uh, but not in the way that we understand. <laughs> no, that's not very pog champ of you at all, Peter. Mm. Don't make me say that again. <laughs> <laughs> And since this is going out in a few months, even that will be extremely dated by the time that uh, that you actually listen to this. So yeah. we come full circle. <laughs> <laughs> it's the circle of life, except with weird internet memes. I mean, I'm extremely online, um, but I don't know. There's just some things I don't feel like devoting any energy towards finding out what they are. Basically, what I'm saying is we need you to write in and tell us if the thing is poggers. Mm. I used to be with it, but then they changed what it was, as someone said in The Simpsons. I think. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, yeah, I sympathise with Principal Skinner and the. Um, no, it, am I wrong about this? No, it is the children who are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, all right. We've been talking for 20 minutes and we haven't got anywhere. So that's a good point to carry on, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, what it behooves us to do now is for you to introduce the concept of the podcast because it's your turn, you little shit. <laughs> no, it's not. It's your turn. It's you know, it, abs- your, it absolutely it's your is your turn. turn. It's your turn. How, look, how I'm going to check my notes. Hang on, I'm checking my notes. I introduced episode 11. This is episode 12. It's your turn. I feel like this is all lies. It's not lies. I, ch- I literally just checked the notes. Did you change the notes since last time? I don't <laughs> Get on with it. Uh, whatever. But if you reveal it, this was a ruse the whole time, <laughs> then I'm never going to introduce it again. <laughs> oh, dear. All right. So uh, you are a person who likes the thing a lot. I am a person who... You know what? Like, if you're joining us at this point in the podcast, just go back to the beginning. We'll explain it all at the beginning. Yeah, right? I mean, explain the concept in the penultimate episode of a podcast. Yeah, like, why would you start listening to something episode twelve of yeah. thirteen? Why would you do that? Here's the short version. You like the thing. I am fairly indifferent about the thing. Uh, we're going to watch it eight minutes at a time have a chat about it and talk about a few other things besides uh if one of us says the phrase the thing um and we're not talking about the monster the film or this little bit of game that i'm discussing right now then we have a bell that we can ding like this uh for no reason other than to irritate the other person and eventually kind of cause some sort of Pavlovian effect. Oh no, I've been keeping score of all the dings so far. Oh. Well, there you go. Mm. I guess I guess we'll get some sort of summary of that next time at the end of time, the podcast. Um, fine. Yes, thank you for that um, half-assed introduction. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do agree that doing a, a full and lengthy introduction of the concept two hours before the end is probably pushing it. Yeah, if you're joining us at this point, what you're doing, go back a bit. You go back to the start. What's wrong yeah. with you? Get on with it. Jesus, it's only 21 hours of podcast. Yeah. <sighs> um. Oh, God, I'm sleepy now. <laughs> All right. This part of the podcast is called Let's Not Talk About the Thing, a section in which I don't talk about the thing. Uh, as my friends will say, this is certainly a rarity. I am going to talk about something tangentially related to, but not directly concerning the thing, which is the, as close as you can get to a normal conversation with me. Mm. Uh, and what have you got for me this week? I am going to talk to you about Dean Cundy. All right. I'm sure you've heard that name before because I've definitely said it sometimes during the recording of this podcast. Do you remember who he is? Uh, Is he in charge of lighting? Is that right? Um, Yes, more or less. He is the director of photography. Yes. Dean Cundy is an American cinematographer and film director. Uh, We have mentioned it before, but not explained. A cinematographer or director of photography is the person in charge of the camera and light crews working on a film. 
They're responsible for making artistic and technical decisions related to the image and select the camera, film stock, lenses and filters to realize the scene in accordance with the intentions of the director. Mm -hmm. He's most famous for his collaborations with John Carpenter, Steven Spielberg, Robert Zemeckis, mostly in the genres of horror, family and comedy. That's a, <laughs> an interesting split. Um, he was nominated for an Oscar for Best Cinematography for his work on Who Framed Roger Rabbit, mm. a film I recently rewatched, and I was just floored by like how they did it. Like, it's really good. It is so good, and mm. it blows my mind that it comes from the time before computers. Mm. You know, like um, some of the effects in that are basically someone lying on the floor waggling a stick in the in the air with something on it and then someone will draw over it you know um it's yeah. absolutely incredible stuff i remember seeing a little kind of making of documentary of it way back close to when it came out probably but mm. um it must have been a few years afterwards because i would have been a bit too young when, when when did it come out 88 i think yeah i would have only been six then so i feel like i actually watched that a few years later but yeah i remember seeing this making of documentary and just being really impressed with all the little tricks that they use like waggling sticks inside um bob hoskins jacket in order to make it look like there was a rabbit moving in there and all that kind of business <laughs> yeah it still holds up as well still a really funny film um i was amazed that it made quite a lot of money at the time but they didn't make a sequel because of how technically difficult it was to do in 1978 he was recruited to work on halloween a film directed and co-written by john carpenter he was the first cinematographer to make use of the recent invention of Steadicam, which allowed camera operators to wear the camera and get shots which were previously thought impossible. Uh, this is what allowed them to achieve the Michael Myers point of view shots in Halloween. He is, in a way, the progenitor of the scary serial killer tracking shot. Ah, uh, yes. Mm. Cundy would go on again to work with Carpenter on the films The Fog, Escape from New York, The Thing, Halloween 2, and Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. Oh, Halloween 3. Um, in addition to his work with Carpenter, he's also worked on Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which we mentioned, mm -hmm. uh, the Back to the Future trilogy, which I think are your favorite films. Oh, uh, there's the, some of them. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. I, I did not realize that. Yeah. What Women Want, Apollo 13, Jurassic Park, Romancing the Stone, and Roadhouse. That's like a very impressive selection of films to have worked on. Yeah. Yeah, all the Back to the Future films for one. I also enjoy those a lot. Yeah. Yeah, and today he's been a cinematographer for sixty-five films. That's uh, that's a fair amount, I guess. Yeah, I, I suppose it is a fair amount because <laughs> I mean, consider they take a, a year or so to make. That's a lot of films. Yeah, I mean, how long are they actually in like filming? I guess. Mm, yeah, I Most suppose that, that varies from film to film, doesn't it? Of yeah, course. but yeah, you're you're packing them in over career to get to sixty-five. He's been nominated for a lot of awards for his cinematography and won a Lifetime Achievement Award for cinematography, uh, but never actually got an Oscar. That's, that's an interesting thing. Yeah, they have that in common with Kurt Russell, don't they? They've been nominated for Oscars, but never actually gotten one. That's quite sad. Mm. All right. That's some time killed. Uh, let's talk about the thing, the bit of the podcast that is the actual bit of the podcast that we're paid for. Yes. Well, I, well I, Wait. Wait I, a uh, second. I'm paid. Uh, <laughs> uh, you're here for exposure. Uh, you money. <laughs> All right. Last time I asked you what happens next, and you said they discover something down in the hole. And I think you said that because I told you they discover something down in the hole. 
I I think what I said that I would have said if you hadn't given me a hint was that they go down into the hole and explore a bit, which is I am still satisfied is a correct answer. Yeah, that is pretty much what they do. Let's check our infection tracker. We've got Blair is definitely infected. Who's not infected? McCready, Gary, Knowles, and Childs. And we all saw them prove that they weren't infected last time via a blood test. Who's yes. dead? Bennings, Fuchs, Copper, Clark, and Windows. And who's dead because they were a thing? Norris and Palmer. Mm. Right. So now it's time for us to listen to the section of one hour and 28 minutes to one hour and 34 minutes of The Thing. If you're playing along at home, don't, don't. Just watch the movie, for fuck's sake. Come on. We've been through this so many times. This is the worst possible way of enjoying a film. Yes. <laughs> and we've turned it into a podcast. <laughs> oh, you can find anything on the internet, can't you? Mm. Right, we've done this 11 times before, but I'll just explain again for the 12th time. What I'm going to do is read a bulleted list of points that summarize 30 seconds or so of action from this section of the film, and we're going to talk about them. If you have something to say, just chip in, or I will chip in if I have something to say, and if neither of us has anything to say, then why did we record this podcast? Mm. The men peer into the hole under the floor. So... While they were looking for Fuchs, Blair said he was feeling much better now and he wanted to come out. Mm. Why do you think he would want to come out? Do you think he was infected at that point? I, I still do. Um, uh, and my thinking about this is probably if he was able to move in and out easier, then he would be able to make preparations for this thing that he's building in in the cavern yeah but he manages to build almost all of it from what we see uh you know under cover of just moving back and forth as a thing without maintaining his human illusion surely it would be harder if yeah. you know he was around he couldn't be just like oh i'm just popping outside to drag some parts to the thing <laughs> yeah i know I, I i guess so but maybe this was just his uh backup plan maybe in an ideal world he wanted to get to the other people so that he could absorb them as well mm. in the director's commentary here john carpenter notes that in the set design and costume design they were almost trying to make a black and white film in color everything is very muted and there are no bright colors anywhere in the film mm. they enter a cavern under the ice so Gary goes first here, so he seems to be taking charge again now that the suspicion on him has been lifted. That's a good point. I hadn't really noticed that. Uh, Carpenter and Russell discuss how this set in particular was very difficult to work in as it's cramped and the flares were constantly filling it with harsh fumes. Mm. But also the whole set is refrigerated, so their breath fogs correctly and it was just very tiring for them to work in in general. If you yeah. watch carefully here, you see the actors trying to hide the flares either off screen or behind other actors so that they don't cause glare on the camera. Uh, right. They don't always manage it, but um, they do a pretty good job. They find a hastily assembled workshop with something resembling a flying saucer in the middle. So um, I don't know whether this is actually supposed to be a spaceship or not, a little spaceship. Well, 
it's interesting, right? Because Gary says it looks like a ship of some kind. Yeah. And I think it's widely assumed that it's some kind of UFO that it's building out of yeah. human ship parts. In the short story that this is all based on, it's actually built at a sort of anti-gravity belt. Hmm. I think the intention of the thing here is not to GTFO into space. It's to mm. get to another continent. Yeah, um, I, I kind of agree there. From its point of view, it's landed in the worst possible place, right? It's landed in the middle of an ice desert at the end of the world with no living things around. Yeah. If it can just... if it, can, Why did you ring the bell? Living no, things. Living things, yeah. Uh, that, that's a... That's a phrase. That's not just the word <laughs> the thing. That's cheating. Oh. I'm not I'm not counting that one. Um living beings around. <laughs> I mean, if it can just if it can just hop across to Argentina, then um that would be amazing from its point of view. Weirdly specific, but okay. Um, um well it's because they launch a lot of missions uh to Antarctica from Argentina. Uh, I see. That's 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 why <laughs> it's it's closest. I think. I was, it's like, what have we got against Argentina? Like, <laughs> <laughs> fuck the RGs, fill them with things. No, um, Falklands War it, never ended for you. Um, <laughs> happened before I was born. Um, <laughs> no, I think, I think it is just a place that they generally launch them from. Um, I think it is just close, and it works out. It works out that way. I mean, um, one of the things they were planning to do in the short story is try and contact Argentina uh, for rescue. I guess that's why it's sort of stuck in my head. This whole section is foreshadowed a little more in the novelization and the script because various helicopter parts and kitchen machinery keep going missing. Like people are looking for things and they can't find them for quite yeah. some time. And it's because Blair is pinching like, you know, the food processor for its microprocessor <laughs> chips and things. Yeah, I didn't even remember that this was a plot point in the mm. film at all because it, it seems so incidental and it it barely even matters after they find it, really. Yeah, it, it's just to highlight the fact that Blair's been up to naughtiness. Yeah. <laughs> I always thought it interesting that he's built it in a cave under the ice because we're assuming it's some sort of ship. He's going to have to dig it out to get it to go. Right, yeah. I suppose it it could be... A spaceship, if you interpret the beginning as the thing never actually wanted to be on this planet and it actually ideally would rather just get off. Mm. What some ancillary sources like the original script for the 2011 film and some of the adaptation stuff have concluded is that that UFO at the start is not piloted by uh, the thing. It's a, a member of a different alien race. Yeah. And what they're doing is going from planet to planet, collecting samples for research, you know, just to, oh, look, here's a thing. Let's look at that thing. Isn't it fun? You could ding me twice there, I suppose. Um, and is that one of the samples they've collected is uh, the thing, you know, one of our friendly beasts, and it escapes and causes the UFO to crash on Earth. So at no point does it genuinely want to land here. It was just an escaped prisoner who accidentally forced the ship to land here. Yeah, that that's kind of my interpretation as well. Um, I, I feel like something went wrong on that ship because of the thing, not that it was the thing all along on the ship. Yeah, it was something that got cut from the 2011 film for 
one reason or another you can read 50 different reasons online mm-hmm. um but basically what they were trying to set up this theme that wherever the thing goes it just brings chaos and paranoia with it and mm-hmm. destruction so like from our point of view we start in the american base outpost 31 or outpost 4 whatever you want to call it yeah uh, where we see that it drives all the people mad with paranoia and like they end up blowing everything up and killing everyone then we could trace it back one step to the norwegian base where it drove them all mad with paranoia and they ended up killing everyone then we can trace it back one step from there to the ufo and Mm. what they were trying to do in the 2011 film originally was show that like what happened in in the american base and norwegian base happened in the ufo as well like the Mm. aliens of the pilots race were taken over by the thing and they they went mad with paranoia trying to figure out who was a thing and who wasn't and that's what caused them to crash the ufo yeah um yeah i think that's very plausible and in that case they should make a prequel that's set entirely in the ufo obviously <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah where whereupon they find a, a a different different alien race on a planet <laughs> yeah where they've got whatever like i don't know whatever aliens keep as pets like giant crabs right <laughs> yeah different alien puppy thing <laughs> they pat it with their 17 tendrils the, mm-hmm. the fact that that stuff got cut out of the 2011 movie, I realize we're digressing, but it, it kind of annoyed me because, um, A, it was an amazing puppet that Studio ADI produced as the the pilot. Mm. Um, and B, just thematically, it just carried on the thing so perfectly to me. Uh, I'm talking about the thing as a concept there. Don't, don't ding me. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, that, you know... It, basically wherever this wherever this thing goes in the universe it just leaves this trail of destruction and paranoia behind it Mm. or you know presuming it isn't stopped a perfectly assimilated thing world i suppose so Mm. but does it even want a perfectly assimilated thing world is that its end game i'm unclear the only thing we can extrapolate from its behavior in the films is that it wants to take people over yeah but we don't know if it's doing that just because it's in a desperate survival situation <coughs> yeah like there's one of it just one lump of its biomass left and it's in the most inhospitable place on this planet so yeah. I mean, if, if it crashed in new york would it just copy one person and then be like this is fine <laughs> <laughs> There's yeah, there's like an interesting interpretation of the thing's behavior that it's just very scared and wants to get out. <laughs> yeah, the only other thing that suggests to me that maybe it's always gonna assimilate is if all you have is a hammer, then everything looks like a nail, right? I mean, if your primary method of interfacing with the world is fully adaptive biology, then yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe. I mean, we've never really seen a thing when they're just hanging out. What do they do in their spare time? We don't know. No, that's true. But, I mean, that does that raises even more questions about: Are they, you know, sapient? Is it thinking or is it just responding? Hard to say. Oh God, we're, we're only forty minutes in, and we, we've gone into philosophy again. Mm. Macready said it was trying to go any place but here. Mm feel like we've covered that point oh yes i think we have (laughs) we fade to black and back in on a corridor the camera shows us the main entrance so this is a very interesting shot because we see the long hallway of the base the stairs down to the basement where the generator is 
Then we come back to the room earlier where we saw Childs guarding the main entrance. And the door is open. Ice is covering the floor. Where's Childs? Why would he go outside? And why wouldn't he shut the door behind him if he did? Uh, Has he he been assimilated at this point? See, this is why I was trying to draw your attention to this shot in the last moments of of the last episode of this podcast. Um, Because the camera goes up the hallway and there's Childs, you know, by the door. And then we get almost exactly the same shot here. And Childs is gone and the door's open and his coat is missing. Yeah, I didn't. I, I guess I didn't really pick up on it. But mm. yeah, uh, I don't know. Yeah, so I mean, that's all it boils down to at this point is where is he? Why would he go outside? And has he been assimilated? We don't know. We cut back to the shack. The men are rigging up bombs. Now here, I feel like I've missed a. It, it, I feel like it misses a beat here because I'm not clear on at this point why they are just merrily rigging up bombs. I think they're planning to destroy the UFO. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. I, I just wasn't sure what their aim was there. And if they and, and bomb seems a bit extreme, couldn't they just smash it up or something? I don't know. Well, you got to think that almost all of these parts came from like stuff that had been pre-smashed up, right? Like a <laughs> helicopter. So it's it's quite adaptable like yeah. in its thinking. And that's an interesting point as well that we hadn't really covered in our 45 minute long digression just now is that yeah. um Blair smashes up the helicopter yeah and the snowcats and the radios does he do that because it's easier for him to get the parts when they're all smashed up and nobody's paying any attention to them like i mean if i nicked a whole bunch of helicopter parts it would probably be easier to tell they were missing from an intact helicopter than one that had just had a axe whaled in it. Mm, I, I think no. I think that he wasn't a thing at that point and that his actions uh, were just kind of his response to understanding a bit more about what what's happening here and the kind of danger they were in. Yeah, on balance, I'm prepared to agree with you. Um, it's just an interesting mm. point, really, is that he could conceivably have been under its control at that point and just making that stuff more easily available to him. Yeah, yeah it could be true. So also, at this point, we get the music back. It's been away for quite a while. Yeah, straight back into the old dum-dums of um, desolation. Yeah. Uh, it, in some way, it's a, a little bit comforting, I think, at this point. Do you know, I was just thinking that. It, like, the, like, the music turning back up this point is like an old friend arriving. Yeah, because <laughs> even though the music itself is quite ominous, you feel like, okay, it, it just provides a backdrop to everything. They've got a plan, they're doing something now. Um, and it makes the whole place feel a little less empty, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I think the music definitely adds something that was missing, you know, deliberately from the previous scenes. Yeah. Um, Knowles is guarding the door. He sees someone leave the base and run out into the snow. So could be Charles, could be Blair. It's not really clear. Yeah. It couldn't be anyone else, right? The, there's, well, there's no one else alive. But... There's no one else. It could. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I'm prepared to believe it was Childs, but yeah, uh, is Childs just off on his own adventure at this point that we just don't ever see? Mm. Has he perhaps seen Blair and has gone after him or something like that? Could that be an uh, an explanation? I think that might be an explanation. Let's hold off on 
discussing Childs for a little while, because I have a feeling that he's going to be important later. Right, okay. Suddenly, the lights go out in the whole base. They think the thing has blown the generator so that it can freeze again and wait for the rescue team. Now, because uh, I just wasn't quite clear on this when I was watching, is that happening in the same shot where Childs runs out? Uh, a little while afterwards, but we've already seen that they're happy to play around with time a little bit. Yeah. If it's supposed to be happening almost immediately after that uh, he was seen, I don't think that there was time for Childs to be responsible for that, is the reason that I'm thinking about that. Yeah, but also we've seen similar cuts like this in the bit where Fuchs goes missing, that the passage of time may actually be longer than it seems. But I'm I'm inclined to think that it is just a few moments after Childs or whoever leaves the base. Yeah, so I think that's kind of happening at the same time. Perhaps, um, I don't really have a good idea of what Childs can see mm. from where he is, but maybe he saw Blair going somewhere and realized, oh, he must be going down to mess with the generator. He needs to put a stop to that. So Charles runs out in order to try and put a stop to it, but he's too late. Yeah, it's interesting you say that as well, because do you remember the long panning shot we were talking about that was a bit mysterious? Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things it does is highlight that the door to the generator is next to where Charles is standing. Ah, okay. So um, if something was going wrong there it would be very difficult for him to not notice mm. so maybe he is just being lured out into the snow so it can get to the generator one of the things you don't see in this film but you do in the 2011 movie is that it can split itself up into smaller chunks right for different things yeah maybe he sees the little blood rat that we talked about last time <laughs> <laughs> i definitely want a netflix originals cartoon about the the blood the, yeah. <laughs> the blood of the thing best. just wandering around like a little shoggoth just an eyeball on a stalk this is the second turning point towards total hopelessness for the men where they realize that they aren't getting out of this situation alive mm. um the first one which we didn't really comment on at the time is when mccurdy records his message because he's recording his message in case he's assimilated or killed yeah here again he says to the other men we aren't getting out of this alive. Like mm. at this point, the audience knows that this probably isn't going to be a happy ending for them. Yeah. Funnily enough here on the audio track is where they confirm that they just don't know if Charles is a thing or not. They went back and forth over it. And in the end they were just like, Oh, well, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we don't I, know. I had actually, cause I, I remember how the film ends, um, just because it's quite memorable in that way. Mm. Um, but I, didn't remember that they had come to the conclusion before that ending that there was just kind of no way out now. I don't know whether that changes in any way, but I can't think how it would change at this point because I can't see yeah, how they would get, get get anywhere now. I think it's in human nature to sort of always kind of hope that you're going to get out of this situation yeah. no matter what it is, but I think that what's going through these guys' heads is that, you know, yeah, okay, we're going to die, but maybe there's something we can do to stop it. Yeah. I, I don't think that they are going to reach that goal. Yeah. Yeah. They decide that they have to kill the thing once and for all. Uh, this is where McCready says, we're not getting out of here alive. 
but neither is that thing. Mm-hmm. They used dynamite to destroy the UFO under the tool shed, and that's why they were building the uh, the bombs earlier. This is a really nice explosion here, a really bassy one, and um, John Carpenter says he'll never forget how it felt to blow up structures that big. <laughs> so that's not a model, that's a full-size building full of dynamite that they blew up. We'll keep it warm for a little while, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and that does come up later as well. Um, so for obvious reasons, these shots were filmed by remote cameras. <laughs> <laughs> Noel's Gary and McCready drive a tractor through the wall of the base. So if you look at it closely, um, what happens is it drives through the wall, falls down a bit, then wiggles again, but seems like it's stuck and there's a sudden cut. And that's because the tractor drove through the subflooring of the soundstage <laughs> and yeah. um, they couldn't um, they couldn't go anywhere. <laughs> so they, they were like, well, that's that's good enough. Um, yeah, it's it's unclear um, what the goal here is anyway. <laughs> I think it's to be cool. Yeah, it's, it seems like that way, because they could have done the same thing just by going through the door, really. <laughs> also, also, it kind of gets the tractor out of the way, right? Because they drive it in and then they smash up the fuel tank. That's and once they blow up the base, the tractor isn't going anywhere either. Mm. I suppose they could treat the tractor a bit like a a bomb because it's full of fuel mm. um so it'll blow up nicely and if it's in the base that'll help destroy the base i don't know it's a caterpillar tractor the same brand as my glasses what a weird world this is <laughs> <laughs> yeah companies tend to make like one thing and then also a whole bunch of other things that don't seem like they're related but probably are mm. like i was on a ferry once and it had been built by yamaha and i was like keyboards <laughs> yeah but they also make um motorbikes like motorbikes and, yeah. and motorbikes seem closer to uh <laughs> and motorbikes more like a ferry than a saxophone i'd argue <laughs> yes <laughs> it, i don't know it's just one of those things where you associate them with one particular product don't you and then yeah. don't really dwell on the fact that they also make other things like a lot of people have caterpillar boots you know but yeah may not really associate them with all of the work tools which are where those boots come from right yeah i used to have a, a yamaha um sound card I... <laughs> I still have a Yamaha piano and a Yamaha bass guitar. <laughs> turns out their uh, their heavy industries department turns out ferries in their spare time. Um, ferries, motorbikes, and <laughs> who knows what else. You could probably buy a Yamaha hat. They start moving through the base, throwing Molotov cocktails and dynamite sticks. Fiery explosions follow them. So... This was all filmed on stage at Universal uh, with the men moving through and setting each room on fire, being followed by the camera crew. The fire department was on standby and they had about 30 guys hanging around with fire extinguishers, but they were still a bit nervous about burning down the whole of Universal Studios. Must have been a bit fun, though. Oh, yeah. I genuinely think this must have been the most fun thing to film, right? I mean, how often do you get to blow up 
<laughs> a dozen rooms. Yeah, I bet if you are responsible for the success of any of this, though, it, it is a nervous kind of situation as well, because you're like, oh, if anything goes wrong with the filming of this, we've just blown up our whole set and can't do it again. Yeah, this this is exactly what John Carpenter brings up in the um, director's commentary. He says, well, um, Kurt Russell says to him, what would you have done if like, it hadn't worked or it didn't look that impressive? And he's like, special effects. We'd have had to make a tiny model of the base and blow that up instead <laughs> and uh, hope that it looked as good. I uh, we we did have a furious argument just before we started recording the podcast about this scene, uh, where I don't think I was getting my point across very well. <laughs> but let's not get into that. But we we did. You thought that this was just the same shot of an explosion from different angles, and I, I thought it might have been, yeah, yeah. And it turns out it's not a because of the way they do it, and b you can actually see it. But right. I'll, I will give you that it is a very confusing shot because it's cutting back and forth between different parts of the same corridor exploding and the rooms yeah. that are exploding are all just part of the same set so i guess they're all just kind of sort of going to explode in the same way really yeah i thought they might have just been cutting back to the same explosion over and over again but if you if you look carefully then you can see some uh, signs that that it, it's not that mm. yeah it's it's the barrels along the corridor that i that eventually clued me in I'm I'm a little surprised it's not that actually because they're not too shy about reusing shots like that. No, 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 no. It, it's definitely happened, but yeah. um, I imagine if you've gone to the trouble to blowing a whole bunch of things up with cameras in it, then you're going to use as much of that footage as you can. <laughs> Fair enough. They walk downstairs to the generator room. This is a wonderful set. I love it. It's unclear, uh, I think, whether Antarctic bases actually do have a big underground generator cave like this. <laughs> um, do you know, I did look it up, and you're right, it is sort of unclear. I mean, um, generally, they build these bases by putting them on the ground on top of the ice. Yes. Um, but snow tends to accumulate very quickly around them, mm. so they get buried very quickly. And sometimes they have dug them out, like to, well, because if it's underground, it's a lot warmer than if it's on the surface, because, right. you know, there's no wind and it's insulated on every side. Yeah. It's just not clear whether they were doing that at the time this was built. I mean, it must have at least been an idea because yeah. they used it in the film. It isn't really clear in the film, but in the script, a lot more of the base is underground than I guess you finally actually see. Yeah, but even what you actually see, it's quite a big space. It, that, that, yeah. That's what surprised me, I think, is that there's quite a lot of it. It goes in quite a way. Yeah, I never really thought about it at any point. Like, they, you know, they just descend into a magical ice cave and that's it for me, really. Like, stuff yeah. is happening. Uh, but I've no, I never really dwelled on the fact that, yeah, it is sort of like an enormous space that they've hollowed out beneath their own encampment. Yeah. Um, there's a bunch of different areas here as well. Like, uh, there's the generator room. There's sort of like a, a waste dumping area where they've kind of dragged big broken things and left them behind. Mm. But this whole thing is built in a refrigerated soundstage with steam pipes and like lots of tunnels going off to these different areas. Right. Uh, John Carpenter here says that this is the point where the film becomes most like a war film or a kamikaze film to him because the men have a suicide mission to perform and it's vitally important they do it even if they don't come back themselves. Mm. the men find the generator completely missing this comes with a great line which is a little bit of comic relief from gary 
the generator's gone, McCready. Any sign we can fix it? It's gone, McCready. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, if I had to guess, that generator is in the UFO <laughs> that they blew up. Yeah, it's it's either there or it's just sort of like taking it off in a huff and hucked it out into the ice. You know, it's yeah. <laughs> they aren't getting it back, wherever it is. If you made me put money on it, I would say it's probably just been blown up in the UFO. Yeah. Wait, it can't possibly can be, can it? Because, um, you know, they found the UFO before the generator went out. So it can't be in the UFO. Oh, yeah, no, you're right. It can't be. So I reckon it's just taken it off in a fit of peak and hawked it out onto the ice. Can it have gone that far, though, in that case? Maybe there is some hope of finding the generator again. Maybe. I mean, it might have just smooshed the whole thing completely up. You just don't know. The men split up to plant charges around the underground area. Null sets up some bundles of dynamite near where the generator used to be. Gary walks out of sight of the others, planting charges. His headlamp flickers, and he takes it off to repair it. Suddenly, Blair appears and grabs his face. So... Here's the final jump scare of the film. Blair coming around the corner to the squeedling of a synthesizer. Yeah, so you get the same sting here as we heard when Fuchs sees the uh, thing run past earlier. Uh, And uh, at the time, we talked about this a bit, I wasn't sure whether it was a sting or was supposed to be some kind of monstery sound effect. And I think that's a thing. I, I think previously I wasn't sure because there was a lot of, other sounds around it it was a bit more disguised Mm. here i'm more convinced that it's just a sting yeah (laughs) Uh, yeah this is the end of gary isn't it what you've been foretelling for some time using your terrible future knowledge yep i did remember this one um so that's how i knew that uh, blair definitely ended up the film as a uh uh, as a thing and gary definitely falls victim to thing blair somewhere near the end uh, in the original script blair never returns in human form once they've realized he's a thing uh but they threw in this little last appearance so the audience would know for sure that he was a thing gary is forced up against the wall blair's hand melding with the skin of his face so yeah it's kind of the first time that we've seen the thing do an attack without a complete and very obvious transformation being involved yeah yeah you're right i mean it's um this is sort of like a stealth mode attack isn't it really yeah it makes it a little bit more scary i think this this particular one because it shows you that it actually doesn't really necessarily have to go full on kind of beast mode um yeah it just it just has to get you alone yeah so blair looks totally dispassionate here as he takes over gary like Mm -hmm. just all pretense of humanity is gone it's just a totally blank expression yeah but something i find i don't know whether this is interesting or not because it's kind of obvious but it it's interesting to watch it nevertheless is that even though it is this alien creature the way that as he does this uh, attack, he kind of d- does a little check to see that nobody else is watching is a very kind of human action. Yeah, so, yeah. I was going to say, it's it's an interesting 
in my notes I've got down, it's an interestingly human affectation, isn't it? That he yeah. just does a little peep around to make sure that he's not being caught. I mean, especially because presumably it has senses other than just the human ones, right? I mean, yeah, it's. I suppose it's unclear actually, unless it you know grows an extra eye or something. Maybe it just doesn't. But um, yeah, well, I mean, yeah, well, I, I suppose when you get that little spider head yeah. late, uh, uh, earlier on, it it kind of puts up little eyes on Stalk, so maybe it just kind of uses whatever is available in its current form mm. and so while it's in a pretty much a, a, a regular human form then it's just going to use regular human kind of actions mm. something very interesting here is that donald moffat the actor who plays gary he managed to put a lot of emotion into just his eyes really because mm. he looks like he's pleading he's not happy <laughs> at all at this point yeah uh, some technical notes um the hand wedged against his mouth is actually rob bettine's hand um, oh, okay yep uh they wanted to have a tendril wiggling out of the corner of his eye as well um but they didn't have time to make the effect work ah uh, okay uh it was supposed to be like a, attached with like a line of makeup running up and a little wiggly tendril but they just couldn't get it done in time there's a famous quote here from John Carpenter where during the filming of this scene, he asked Wilford Brimley what he as an actor was thinking during this scene. And uh, Wilford Brimley replies that he just thinking that he has to go up and pick his laundry up on the way home. <laughs> <laughs> a consummate professional, but also, you know. <laughs> but uh, maybe there's something to that, though, that if you're supposed to be doing something in a very kind of dispassionate way, then the way that you achieve that is by thinking of trivial things. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. McCready and Knowles are back together, placing charges. And that's it. That's that's where we wrap up this section of movie. <laughs> There is not much left at all. Um, I think when we come back, there's four minutes of movie and a further eight minutes of credits. Yes, so uh, one more podcast to discuss that. Just the last little bit. Oh, I'm very excited. This has been going very well. Uh, yeah, it's it's been uh, it's been a fascinating look at this thing. I've uh, examined the thing in really more detail than I ever thought that I would at this point. So all that remains at this point is for me to ask you what happens next. What do you think happens next? Can you guess? Four minutes of footage left. <laughs> well, um, I don't remember what the tipping point that brings us into the kind of climax of the film is so i'm not going to be able to say this very accurately i don't think but all all i know is that some more uh, fights happen uh mccready has at least one major confrontation with the thing in some sort of horrifying form uh it's definitely going to charge at him or one of the others by kind of going up through the floorboards or something like that. I remember that shot. There's a lot of... There's some action that happens, but I don't remember the next thing to happen that kind of triggers that action. 
So that's where I'm a bit unclear. So I, I would say I have to say I don't really know exactly what happens next. So what I've put down from you is Mac attacks the thing as it bursts through the floorboards. Yeah, I don't think that's immediately next though. Uh, okay. but immediately next, I'm going to have to say McCready discovers the thing mid attack at some point. Okay, and um, for the last ever time, let's let's do the infection tracker. So we think Blair is infected. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's what we call certain now. Um, <laughs> was it the face grabbing that gave it away, or yeah, that was? Uh, <laughs> I don't think that's something that Blair just does. So we've got who's not infected? McCready. Uh, I'd still say not infected. Uh, Knowles. What about Knowles? Knowles uh, not infected. Childs. I've got to move Charles to maybe oh. now. I, I I feel like just because his actions previously are now kind of mysterious. And and what do we think about about Gary? What do we think about Gary? If he quote survives this, then he's <laughs> uh, then he's infected. Yeah, but um, if he gets discovered mid infection, then I think he's just dead. Um, so I th- I would say at this point, yeah, he is infected, but not in a way where he's going to be able to mask himself as no the, uh, as the thing. It'll be pretty clear. Yeah, so I, I, I don't think that there's any world in which he's just going to turn a corner and say, uh, hi, I'm I'm fine, actually. Nothing just happened. Um, <laughs> I had to go away for some minutes, but I'm back now. Yeah. Uh, so, um, so I don't think he's infected in the way that we've been talking about in this podcast. I think he's just done for. Uh, I put him down in the infected, but with a mark after him, so we know that, you know. Something weird is going on with him. Yeah. So who's dead? Bennings, Fuchs, Copper, Clark, and Windows still. And who's dead from being a thing? Norris and Palmer. Wow. So the film is almost entirely over. So what are you are you thinking about the film? How are you enjoying it? If someone had forced you to watch almost all of the film, barring the last four minutes. <laughs> uh, what would you think? This all feels like how you um how you would do it to a child, maybe. You know, this is the point where we cut and we go, yeah, they got out. Happy ending. <laughs> yeah, it, it all went very well. Um, they uh, they dealt with the thing, actually. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I uh, I think my opinion is not likely to change a whole lot. Uh, there's definitely some stuff to talk about. We're going to be able to talk about the ending, for sure. Uh, but um, I I think it's a good one of these uh, i i think it's more about my opinion of the genre as a whole you know i think that this is what it comes down to because um i don't dislike the genre but i don't love the genre either it doesn't have like a a hold on me it doesn't fascinate me in the same way that i think it fascinates you um and uh, so while this whole process has given me uh, a a greater appreciation for the film because uh, just because of the sheer process of looking at it in so much detail, mm. um, and because I always uh, find 
have found the film pretty enjoyable to watch. Um, yeah, I, I have enjoyed this, but I don't think it's ever going to be on my, this is one of my favorite films of all time list, just because I don't, I, I don't feel that much affection for the mm. genre or premise as a whole. I actually find it sort of hard to sum up what I like so much about this film, which you'd think would be surprising because it is quite clearly my favorite film. Yeah. But like there are other horror films that I'm just not interested in. It just seems like this one hits a perfect sweet spot for me. Yeah, uh, I think sometimes things are just formative in that way as well. Mm-hmm. Like some, sometimes something hits you in uh, at just the right time in just the right way. Yeah, uh, it sort of unavoidably becomes a part of you. <laughs> yeah, Much we have like... we have mentioned that I've seen this way too early. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and because uh, even though when I now because we mentioned that Back to the Future is one of my favorite. Uh, film series if you had to press me i might say that uh, that that is my favorite film series but looking back on it there are parts of that film where i'm like oh this this is a bit clumsy or this doesn't quite work <laughs> or this uh i i don't enjoy this bit of it as much as i did when when i was a kid mm-hmm. um but I think I, it, will, it will still always remain one of my favorite films just because it hit me at just the right time and fired my imagination in just the right way yeah. that I will always think of it fondly when I watch it. Mm. Yeah, you, um, you, I think you couched it sort of interestingly there. What, what, what is the best Back to the Future film, Peter? Uh, no, no cop-outs. Come on, I want a number. Two, actually. Really? <laughs> Yeah, I I think it's really close between the first two. Yeah, but I really like Back to the Future two a lot, and I think it's because uh, even when I was very young, the idea of in the back half of that film of them uh, going back into the first film and kind of sneaking around it. It's um, so clever. It's, it really is. I, I've ne- I've never seen another film do that in quite the same way, mm. uh, and uh, and it really there, there's something about that that really um, that my imagination really enjoyed as a child, and and it, and it uh, all holds together really well, even though they changed the actress who played Jennifer between films. <laughs> uh, you, you know what? Um, and this maybe doesn't put me in the best possible light, but even though that was one of my favorite films, uh, I didn't notice that they did that until years later. Yeah, neither, neither did I. I didn't notice until I watched a YouTube video, and I was yeah. like, I've seen these films a million times, that's wrong. And then they, they blew it apart scene by scene, and I was like, wow, that's that's like inattentional blindness taken to a whole new level, right? They completely changed the character. Yeah, I mean, I guess she's not very much in the first film, so you don't really think about it. But yeah, com- completely different person. Looks very different. <laughs> <laughs> they just recreated the end. Look, look, at the start, they recreate the end of the first film so well, you can't really tell. Uh, do you know what really blew my mind as a child? Mm-hmm. When I saw Back to the Future 2, right, and at the end, there's like a, a long trailer for Back to the Future 3. Yes. When I saw that, I was like, wow, how do they know like what's going to be in that film? Did they just shoot all these little bits just to do it? Because <laughs> I, like, 
I didn't know much about filmmaking. I didn't realize that they just shot them back to back. <laughs> it's one massive film. <laughs> yeah, and it was one of maybe the first major film to do it in that way. Yeah. Um, uh, because they had a plan. They were going to make Back to the Future in uh, two and three was ba- was going to be one big long plot, yeah. but then they realized that it would be the most expensive film ever made if they did, <laughs> <laughs> if they did that. Um, so um, rather than not doing that, they said uh, that they kind of compromised with the producers and said, oh, "Well, why not make two films though then and just do it at the same time?" So it will be, in a sense, the most expensive film ever made but we'll be releasing it twice so that's fine (laughs) (laughs) it's really interesting i mean (laughs) i just assumed you know looking back on it cynical and world weary here in the future that it was just a cash grab i never really realized that it was just literally like hey we've got so much plot that the film will be seven hours long (laughs) yeah it was just a way to make the whole endeavor uh, affordable to to split it in half because they would know there was no way that they were going to allow them to make that bigger story otherwise it's interesting though i mean because they still have to upfront the costs of both films but um Mm. but i guess you recoup them differently yeah the calculation is that you get two box office revenues from it because it's two films and uh you uh, also get to save a little bit of money on it's probably cheaper to make two films at once than it is to make two films separately Separately, yeah Uh, and so you kind of save on the production costs of both films and still kind of get the same revenue expectations of when you release them (laughs) Uh, so it it probably was kind of a fairly compelling financial argument yeah, well, I mean, I guess it worked. They are three very, very popular films. Mm. Well, I guess all that leaves us with at this point is to um, reveal our secret internet locations. Yes, and by secret internet locations, we, of course, mean public internet locations that we want you to know. Um, <laughs> well, they will be after this. Uh, so I can be I can be found with the handle on Twitter and things like that. Kestrel Pie, that's Kestrel like the bird, and Pie like the irrational number. And you, I'm Kieran J Walsh. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we can't. You can't, you can't just say goodbye. You, you, we've forgotten. We've got to plug our game. Oh yeah, okay. so now you've got to we've got, you've got to you've got to work that in. Maybe say the URL, but like loudly and clearly. <laughs> yeah. So once again, the name of that game is Fix Fix Bang Bang. You can find it at surprisedman.itch.io. I really like. Okay, so there are three major game releasing platforms at the moment, right? Four, I guess. There's the Epic Store. There's Steam. There's GOG and itch.io right maybe humble as well and maybe humble yeah all right i didn't want to get into listing all of them i mean there's also the ubisoft store (laughs) yeah it turns out there are many ways to get games yeah yeah um and uh, of they've all got their ups and downs Uh, some are more terrible than others i'm looking at you gog but 
of all of them, the one that so- sounds the least pleasant to me is is itch.io. Like I, I always read it as itchio, like a mm-hmm. like an itchy bumhole, and I'm like, oh, what? <laughs> was there no other available? Why is it itch? Why? Like that doesn't leave me happy. Anyway, buy our game. <laughs> but probably the most friendly pa- pra- platform yeah, from no, the perspective they are, of they yeah. are absolutely the nicest one why do they yeah. sound like a hemorrhoid i don't know yeah i don't love it but we're stuck with it download our game from there <laughs> yeah okay goodbye good bye. thank you thank you for doing this again peter goodbye goodbye bye 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 bye, bye. bye.